Welcome to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast with Petra and Perks. This podcast is simple. We want to go beyond bubble bath wellbeing and think deeply about the world we live in and what it really takes to thrive. This includes things like activism at work, challenging the cult in culture, and of course, having brave conversations that lead the way in building a future of work that we want to be part of, including making benefits inclusive for all. So let's dive into our next episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Disrupting Wellbeing podcast. Um, today, I am extremely privileged to not just have one guest, but to have three amazing humans uh, that I've recently been introduced to uh, who have their own podcast talking about mental health and are, I, I'll let them introduce themselves because I'm really excited today to talk about mental health from a different lens than we're usually kind of focused on and just see where the conversation goes. So if you don't mind, esteemed guests, I'd love just a quick intro on who you are, what you're about, maybe what you're focused on. Charlie, I'll start with you. Hello. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, so I am currently working as a core surgical trainee. So I graduated med school in 2020 and I moved down to the South Coast in order to start my training. Um, I joined the charity UOK Doc in 2021 and I was approached by the CEO in order to try and reach out to medical students by starting a podcast. And that's how I met my lovely co-hosts. And uh, I love the idea of your podcast. Charlie, would you just let us know what the name of the podcast is so people can get a sense of it? It's called The Student Dose. And the main focus is to talk about a lot of the issues surrounding medical students specifically, particularly in preparation for their lives as doctors, but also focusing on the student-specific aspects to mental health, what things uh, they're experiencing uh, and how they might be best managed and even overcome. Amazing. Uh, that's such a great, uh, I'll, I'll definitely be dialing in and sharing it uh, with with my network. Um, Katie, what about you? Again, thank you so much for having me and having my team as well. My name's Kate. I am currently in my final year of medical school, so I'm just about to go into my first year of practicing. And I'm very fortunate to work around a lot of uh, clinical staff and doctors at the moment. I'm someone that has lived experience of mental health. I've sought help before. I've found it hard to get help. I've found it great getting help. And I'm very, very passionate about the advocacy towards mental health in medicine, as well as just in the general population. Same as Charlie, I came upon the charity UK doc just through my own research. And now I'm very, very fortunate to be working as an ambassador and helping other medical students and doctors reach out to find support. And I'm thinking, Kate, how do you find the time? Honestly, that's sort of our focus. We always discuss that it's one of the big things for doctors is just the time pressures of the job, the constant stress, the the general sort of pressures of working away from home, working nights, doing twilight shifts. And it can be really hard to do extracurricular things as well. But I think it's such a lovely charity and there's so much support meeting with my fellow ambassadors. It's not just kind of finding time to do something else. It's finding time to actually speak about my own problems. And they also help with things that I'm going through at the moment. So it also becomes almost like a little bit of a therapy session as well, which is amazing. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So you're building awareness, but you're also getting something out of it and be able to support each other. Beautiful. Claire, tell us about you. Hello there. Um, a final thank you for having us all on the podcast. We're super excited to be here. As Katie was saying, myself and her came on, I think it was maybe three years ago now to the UK Doc charity um, as the first sort of medical student level ambassadors. So that's kind of how um, we got to know each other and then the lovely Charlie through working on the podcast. Personally, I am in my third year of medical school on a six year course. So out of the three of us, I have the longest to go in terms of uh, getting that doctor title. The journey. Yeah, hopefully at some point, um, some point soon. But I actually came in as a postgraduate. So off the back of uh, another degree, I studied geography first. And also had a few years working um, in more of a creative role. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, kind of my background. It's been great getting to know both Kate and Charlie and the wider UOK Doc team uh, through the podcast. And so what excited you, Claire, just about getting involved in, in your podcast and in the charity? Yeah, so as I was saying, I did work before um, starting medical school. So that was actually a production job. So I worked in media production, event production, that sort of side of things. So I guess that's how I got into this specific project. But the charity more widely um, 
Dan, um, Daniel Guerin, our CEO, he spoke at a work experience day that I attended prior to starting medical school. So that's how I found out about the organisation. And he just spoke so passionately um, about something that I think I was probably naive to in terms of the situation specifically within the medical school and medic environment. And that just kind of um, put the organisation and the topic matter on my radar. I made it something that I wanted to be involved in. So I'm curious about like common misconceptions because, um, hey, we've all seen the shows, right, that um, kind of track uh, medical students and, and the doctor's experience and the occasional kind of tears in the closet or whatever it might be, right? There's all this drama, right? But what, what's it really like when it comes to, I guess, those managing those stress levels and looking after your own mental health? Like, how do you even manage that? Um, Kate, let me go to you and then Charlie, I'll, I'll jump to you. I think a massive misconception to start with is the idea that doctors and clinical staff don't experience mental health problems. I think there's this very big stigma that doctors are very stern, they don't have their own issues, they are people that care for the population, therefore they can't be cared for. But there are some whopping statistics. I think a recent study, there was about 85% of doctors admitted suffering some sort of mental health problem, whether it was anxiety, depression, or any other problems because of the stress of the job. And that's due to time pressures. That's due to financial stresses among having to care for patients in really critical scenarios. So I think for me, one of the big stigmas, which I found really difficult as well, because I found it so hard to seek help because I was worried that I was very right. unique and I didn't, you know, know that other doctors or other medical students didn't struggle the way I did, is that a lot of doctors actually have quite a high rate of kind of mental health problems compared to a lot of other careers. I think suicide rate as well is proportionally about two to five times higher in female clinicians than the baseline population in the UK as well as in America. So for me, I think a lot of people don't realise that the people that care for you also aren't you know, they aren't v not vulnerable to these struggles, which is which is really sad because a lot of people can't seek help because they feel ashamed to speak out about it. And do you think you'll also uh, you could be I don't know if struck off is the is the right phrasing, but but kind of, you know, like, oh, maybe they'll, I'll be judged and I won't be seen as competent and I'll um, kind of fail my kind of pathway. Absolutely. For me, that was one of the biggest things was I was so scared it would go down the permanent record that I was taking uh, antidepressants. I was terrified that it would go against me. People would think I wasn't fit to practice. I was, I, I put it off for so long and I didn't seek that help immediately because I was terrified that it would eventually lead me to fail out of this career that I'd spent my entire life working towards, well, the majority of my adult life. And I think a lot of doctors historically and now sadly still feel this shame and don't seek help until very late because they're terrified of being taken away from a job which has become almost their entire identity half the time it's really oh, sad right. and yeah and we're hoping through our charity we can not only support doctors and clinical staff but also make them aware that they are not going to be in any sort of trouble by speaking out and they won't be struck off they're not going to lose their job because they're human beings and they have, you know, emotional needs like other people. And of course, it's better for patient care that we talk about these things early on, right? So that it doesn't build up into something where it could affect how we um, kind of show up. Charlie, anything you'd add just as far as misconceptions? Yeah, I, I definitely think a misconception is how much is not on the individual person. I think so much is on the student or the doctor in order to manage so many things. So their own selves, their own well-being and mental health. There's very little support uh, generally across universities and within uh, healthcare institutions, across trusts um, or practices or foundation schools or what have you. Uh, but then also there's the misconception that there's support in terms of your career because Actually, medicine is a much less stable job than you might expect in the UK because commonly, well, the longest contract I've ever had and I've been working for almost four years is, is two years. Um, and then after that, there's no guarantee of, of a set job. There's certainly no guarantee of a job that you'd actually want. Um, and there's definitely no guarantee that it's in the place that you want it to be in. And so I used to find it strange how I'd have a consultant saying, oh, I worked a bit here and I worked a bit there and I worked a bit all across the country. And I'm thinking, why did you, did you want to move to all these places? Like, how does it work? And actually the system is very opaque and you kind of become a number in the system. And 
the job that you get can be anywhere in the country so long as you've applied to that. And because there's not actually that many jobs for you to apply to, and that competition ratio is getting more and more with each passing year, um, because more and more people enter the system, um, you can just be kind of sent anywhere and who you are. Go for it. Yeah. And you just have to go for it because otherwise applications occur once every year. And a lot of these training programs are the singular way in which you can get onto the next level. And so my family, my friends think, oh, you know, you've always wanted to go here and you've always wanted to do this. And actually what to get to that point took a lot of extra work outside of the hospital. And it's very distracting, actually. You find yourself fretting about things that you have to do when you get home, but you've got six or seven patients to look after, if not more. Because when I get home, I've got an exam to revise for, I've got a paper to write, I've got teaching to prepare, and all of this can't be done during the regular working day because that's impossible because you've got six or seven patients to look after. So certainly I think that's a misconception. Um, it's definitely a misconception I had going into it. Well, um, you don't Andy know was. much about the pathway because it's such a long pathway, right? And it sounds like you have yes. the dream of like, I want to get to this doctor place, right? Which sounds great. And and perhaps you have ambitions of helping others and, and different things, right? And then you, you probably don't know the amount of placement hours, the like all the stacking up of the additional elements, right? So you're kind of figuring Absolutely. that out. As uh, I love that you're dialing in from the hospital as well right now, because um, it's just <laughs> yeah. so much. Yeah, I, I, listeners, I am calling technically from the hospital. But the reason why the pathway is, is not very well known is because it's actually so complicated. And I will admit that I had very little idea about it up until my final year of medical school. Oh. <laughs> because A, it changes a lot of the time. So the number of years you might have to do in a particular training post may differ. Right. Um, and the names may change. Yeah. Um, so you might you might think it's one thing, it ends up being another. Um, but also the rules change. And so, for example, to get the job that I have now, I had to do a exam that was originally designed for general practitioners. And they decided to introduce it in October or November of last year for people applying to core surgical training. Now, that exam was a complete unknown to people applying to my training program up until that point. Oh, and by the way, the exam's in January, so you only have about two months to revise for it anyway. So part of the reason you don't know what the pathway is is because they're making it up as they go along, it seems. And, and so, there's constant change. And there's constant change, as well as the fact that you have to apply to three or four different posts before you become a consultant, which everybody thinks you become when you finish medical school anyway. And what I'm hearing is, you know, when there's that much change and uncertainty and adapting and, and these sorts of things, it affects our nervous system. Right. So when it comes to like, oh, let's do some meditation and think about, you know, mindfulness or these little tactics, right? You're like, I am in this constant state of flux. Like, what's going to be the next thing? Now I've got to revise, you know, in two months to, to jump through this next hoop, right? When do we ever breathe? Right. And I, I'm Claire, I could see your face. Um, in this knowing, like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. What's coming up for you just in, in what that process is like? Well, I suppose I think. One tactic of dealing with medical school and that that pressure is just kind of accepting that you're never going to have all. Yeah, yeah, you're not going to have all of the answers. And like, to be honest, I don't even. So I've got three more years. So I've got three and a half more years to go. So I, as much as I listen to Charlie and it's been great to hear of his experience, I kind of take it surface level because so many changes happen all of the time. Right. That actually, there's very little for me to take specifically because things will be so different by the time I come through the other side. Um, even for Kate, there's been like a huge change this year in terms of how we are offered our first jobs on the foundation scheme. Uh, I'll probably leave her to to chat about that specifically because she's just been through it herself. But that change again was one that came about really quickly and didn't seem to have much consultation with those actually involved. So I think yeah. If I if I was talking to somebody who was applying to medical school, I'd say when you first realise that that's a situation where you're in this constant state of not really being sure what's coming next or what the correct pathway is, I think I'd probably just say you're you're not alone and, and get used to it because um, I think if you embrace it, you've got a better chance of kind of progressing forward rather than just constantly 
being on edge, trying to figure out what's coming next. Just don't look too far to the future. Advice for life, right? Just with the way the world is at the moment. But I think it's also when we're feeling overwhelmed and like there's lots of change, Kate, as you were talking about, when struggling with your mental health, you think you're the only one. Oh, everyone else might know the pathway better or might have better advice or might know things, right? And I'm the one who's anxious, depressed or overwhelmed or whatever it might be. And so the more you stick into that narrative, right, probably the worse it becomes. What was your experience, Kate? Yeah, that's such a, a big thing. And it's it's quite sad to hear that because I wish I could go back to me three years ago and go, you aren't the only one. And if you just speak to your friends, you'll find out half them on medication and either half have therapy. And there's so many in between that can't get that access because it's so underfunded. And we don't have those support systems in place half the time because you know, the NHS has lots of problems going on at the moment. I found it really isolating. I was so adamant that it was going to kind of be a red mark in my career that I really didn't tell anyone and I just let it get worse. And I so even found- friends or family. Yeah. Close people outside of. Yeah. Because of the stigma, I think I thought I wouldn't be a very good doctor. I thought, you know, I can't, I can't be the one that's being treated. I have to treat people. I, I'm not the one that should be taking these medications. I'm, I'm the one that should prescribe it. And I was so adamant that it was going to go against me in the future. Not. Not that I ever think that it was going to make me a better doctor because of the compassion of it. I meet so many patients now. I'm in general practice at the moment. So a lot of the patients I see are mental health kind of reviews or patients coming in to speak about anxiety and depression or kind of other mental health problems. And I think not that I'd ever say mental health is advantageous because it's such a struggle. I think I didn't give myself enough credit for how much compassion I developed from my own personal struggle when I met with patients in the future and went, it's okay. It happens. There's so many people around you that will be going through this. You know, just look, look at me. I've, I've been through this as well. I've met with patients because I've done a psychiatry placement before where I've worked with patients who are currently kind of having inpatient care. So they stay at the hospital. And even then I was able to kind of not just relate to struggles, but hopefully understand it a bit more and give them a bit of space where they're talking to someone who's also been through it, maybe not on the same sort of scale, but I think it really helped with my patient care, which I never really thought, like never expected really. Um, but it was very isolating and I'm, I wish I would have told myself many years ago, just speak out to your friends, that'd be fine. And the university will be nice. And a lot of doctors go through this as well. And I also <laughs> imagine that it's not always the perfect outcome when you are, when you do open up, right? And that sometimes that fear unfortunately, is well-founded, right? We should talk to someone, certainly, and there's usually more help than we think, but I guess people have different ex- experiences as well. Uh, Charlie, go ahead. I, sorry, Claire, go ahead. I think you're going to add something. Yeah, I was just going to add on to what uh, Kate was saying there, that actually in terms of even physical health concerns, I think medics and doctors in general find that hard to report as well. So as much as we're talking here mainly about the mental health effects and and reporting those and seeking help for those, medics make really bad patients and we struggle to disclose things because of what Kate was talking about just there, that whole, you know, we are the person who should be treating rather than the person who should be receiving help. But actually, if you break down that a bit, further like patients don't want patients don't want you to be struggling like why would why would why would that be of benefit to a patient in terms of the overall narrative of their care patient that's not what patients want from their doctors whether that's a mental health issue or more of a physical health thing so I think it is almost I guess humanizing the profession and coming to terms with the fact that we're not all perfect robots who go through medical school and and breaking down that sort of stigma. We've talked a lot on our podcast actually about how we work we work hard to get in, to even get into medical school. There's many hoops that you have to jump through and it is quite a competitive well, it's a very competitive process. And I think the nature of that, that that sort of trying to be your absolute best to get in, some of that translates through then as you carry out the course, then into your career in terms of the pressure that you put on yourself, this perfection tendency that we we tend to have the yeah the competitive nature overall. I completely agree that when you're really ill, like if you're a patient and you're really struggling, you want your doctor to be competent or to be you want that confidence within their demeanor and and how they show up because that gives you like a huh, at least somebody knows what's going on, right? So I guess it's finding just like a manager or a leader, you've got to find this balance between vulnerability and showing up as a human 
as well as like, hey, let's collaborate and work on this together and create your care plan or whatever it might be, your mental health care plan. So there's certainly pressures and probably it just takes experience. I have so many questions and I'm like, we do not have four hours. Charlie, I want to just ask you about burnout because that's something a lot of our audience when it comes to organizations and corporate, I'm asking you because you've been in the game just a little bit longer. And it's one of those things that kind of stacks over time, right? So things like compassion fatigue, right? Of course, emotional exhaustion, there, you know, reduced empathy. These are some of those symptoms as well as for people, physical health stuff or, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of connections between stress and our body. What do you see when it comes to, to burnout, Charlie? And I don't know, have you ever experienced some of those signs, even though I see that you're still a young man? What I'll say is that it's incredibly easy to experience because a lot of it is incredibly relentless. The most common adjective that a lot of my bosses use to describe training, i.e. the process of going from F1 first year to your first job as a consultant is a treadmill. And they say just running on that treadmill continuously for a decade, a decade and a half or so, however long it takes, is is exhausting. And one of my particular seniors, who is my supervisor, um, just said he couldn't wait to get off of it, even though he was doing a particular subspecialty that he loved and had been driven to do from a very early age in terms of his career. And obviously what happens when you're on a treadmill, you get very tired and you kind of get fed up. And it's really important to recognize that it can occur. You're not superhuman and it can occur to you, but also to recognize how to stop it as well. Um, because there are a lot of pressures that happens when you're maybe in your late twenties, early thirties, not only do you have your career, but you might be starting a family. There may be financial issues. You might want to buy a house, for example, you might have had your rent increase. And so you might think, no, I can't stop working. I can't take a break. So there's multiple things that we all experience coming at us all the time. Um, add to that, you know, all the things that I mentioned before, exams and, and papers, and as well as patients and night shifts and weekends and so on and so forth. And what it can lead to is, is what you just said, uh, compassion fatigue and all the things that we thought we saw within ourselves when we first started to want to be doctors. Um, I think one thing that definitely happens currently is lip service. Um, so I think there's a lot of lip service to avoid burnout. Uh, yeah. Don't make, make sure you're okay. Oh, but also make sure that you don't miss this. Yeah. <laughs> also make sure that you get this done on time. Um, why haven't you done that? Oh, you've not passed this. That's not very good. What What's wrong with you? What? Why haven't you done that? What's going wrong? And and it's what's wrong so, with you, not what's wrong with the system, right? So yeah. if it comes like when there's a problem, it's like a you problem. And when we're winning, it's like, oh, we can take credit as in the overall kind of system. Sorry, go ahead. No, I agree totally. And so I definitely think there's a lot of lip service um, without there being a lot of action, true action to avoid burnout. And I certainly think early on, that is a that is a big issue because for me personally, it's what I've personally found that was the trigger to experiencing symptoms of burnout um, was less the actual clinical work because that's what I really enjoyed and that's what I got into it for. Um, but it's it's the everything else. It's the fact that actually if I don't get this job um, that I'm applying for, and I've only been a doctor maybe for 18 months or less than 18 months, I'm already applying for next post, then I'll be out of the job completely. And actually it was that kind of straw that broke the camel's back um, for me and led me to recognize that, yeah, this is going to happen if I don't try and fix something soon and, you know, engage with charities like UOK Doc and uh, other methods as well. And I've heard so many things just like, you know, certain expectations perhaps of a family or a culture to become a doctor or to go down that profession um, or even somebody who really wants to do it. And then there's so many years in and then they're experiencing some of the things you described, Charlie, and are like, oh, I don't actually like this, <laughs> you know, and then you're you're stuck with like, but I've invested so much of my time in a certain path. Like, can I even pivot or change? Right. Claire, you pivoted and changed a few times, though, and then moved into this. I don't know if you would say, um, yeah, if there were expectations or anything on, on your side or if you got to experiment a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I, I couldn't be gladder that I didn't do medicine straight out of school. That honestly, I am so glad that I have done things the way that I have because 
I really enjoyed my first degree. I studied geography. Yeah. I'm really outdoorsy. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of similar science elements. So I did a lot of biology modules within that. So um, I guess there's that sort of crossover. And yeah, I loved it. I enjoyed every minute of my university experience, all four years in, in Scotland. Um, so I enjoyed that first time around. And then I got to live and experience the working life and um, I had a grad job and have done a few creative projects and, and really did make the most of that. And before I, I started applying for medicine, I did my homework. So I worked as a pharmacy dispenser. I did my dispensing training. I worked in a GP practice. I volunteered on cancer wards. So I really did look into the profession before applying. And I'm glad I did that because I think my eyes ne weren't necessarily opened when I started med school because I kind of experienced a bit of, of what was to come. And I don't think my peers necessarily had that because if you're at school and doing some work experience on the side, I don't think you necessarily get to see everything. You kind of see what the person in your shadow and wants you to see. Whereas when you're working within the infrastructure, albeit not in the same role, you kind of experience the everyday, mundane, not so great side of things also. Yeah, I'm glad I, I did that. But also coming in, it's, it's kind of what, what Kate was saying before about the empathy and being able to relate to patients. I just find it really easy to talk to people. And I think that's probably come about by all the different people I've encountered and all the different roles that I've done to get to this point. And I should say also, as I'm a graduate, I am paying to attend the university myself. So I had to save up and do that for myself. And I think that probably adds another level as well. You know, I'm I'm paying, so I want to get the most out of the course. So I'm, I, I attend and I take every opportunity going. So I think that probably has something to, to play in, in that aspect as well. So I'm going to think about myself for a second and just use this time as a little group therapy session, even though I'm the therapist, but I'm going to flip it. Um, you said you're in, so I want to zoom out of medicine and that track and some of the things that you guys are doing and just talk about the transition from being a young person in this day and age to making a decision on a direction. For you guys, it's medicine, but for others, it's other things and going to university. And like the impacts on your mental health or advice that you would give to either young people or parents. The reason this is selfish is because my son just moved to university in October and he went to Scotland, Claire. So I'm like, ooh, he's in Glasgow at the moment. And so we're in the first kind of weeks. And of course, as a mental health person, we're very open in our household. He's a boy. I know about like suicide risks. I know all the things, right? And so I'll call him up and be like, what's your loneliness status today? <laughs> and just like be really direct in checking in and he'll, we, we kind of have that conversation. But you're also trying to push away it's in a healthy way, developmentally, you're pushing away from parents and you're moving into like, let me try and kind of, so I'm going to ask all of you this advice for um, parents or students in those early days when it comes to managing that transition connected to mental health, I guess. Claire, yeah, why don't you dive in since you were just speaking and um, and then I'll jump to you guys. Oh, that's a really good question. First off, I'll say that Glasgow's my home city, so he definitely couldn't have picked a better place. Good <laughs> I think, I think, Thinking to parents, I would say don't don't stop asking. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I think sometimes it can be hard to put in towards as a student everything that's going on, if that makes sense. So arriving in a new place, starting a new course, all the requirements that are expected of you, but also learning to adult. So all those things that you, I don't know, like managing money. Yeah. Kicking, like doing your laundry. Yeah. Kicking on top of these things. That's a lot. And I think when asked, sometimes students probably give back a sort of generic, yeah, fine sort of answer. But I think if they know that the conversation is open and that there's somebody there and there's somebody genuinely invested and asking regularly that should things not be going so well, that would give them the opportunity to start that sort of conversation. So even though to start with, they may begin by saying, yeah, yeah, all's fine, mum, don't worry about me. I've got it down. You know, that doesn't mean that in six weeks time, things are still going to be the same. It might be, yeah. Thing, yeah, things things change, things come about, a new challenge occurs and, and they do need you. And I think it's easier if you're being asked than to necessarily bring it up off, like out of nowhere yeah. from yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm struggling. That's a hard thing to say, right? You want someone yeah. to be curious and create that that safety, I guess. Beautiful. I'm loving this chat. Kate, 
What about you? Advice? Parents, yeah. uh, students? Oh, definitely. So I, I think back to starting university and I don't think my body felt a sense of being relaxed for like about a year. I think I spent the entire time going, yes, I'll go out and I'll party and I'll do this. And I wish I would have said no more. Oh, do you feel a kind of, I should? Oh, gosh, I think I wish I would have preserved a little bit of space for me. So I think it's so easy to go, yes, I'll do that. I'll do this. I'll, I'll go out. I'll you know, I'll have fun all the time, but I won't practice any of the things that I've built up from a young age of how to look after myself, like exercising or eating well Le- or meditating or sleeping. I'll completely throw it away because I can. And this is more important right now is to say yes, yes, yes. So I think the main thing for me is say no if you want to. People don't mind. And the people that do mind are probably not people you want to keep in your life for a long time anyway. And also just find out what your university can do for you. Universities are massive. They're businesses. They have a lot of different channels for support. Um, at Manchester, where I go, we had res life workers, which who were workers that lived in the student halls and were on call 24 hours for things like mental health, for helping if someone was poorly. 24 yeah, 24 hours. We had, okay. we had, we had Nightline, which was a 24 hour service for the phone. So you could call in if you felt unsafe, if you need to talk to someone. We have free. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy if you go through the right people so i think do a bit of research find out what universities can do for you because they can do a lot but a lot of people just aren't aware of the proper channels to access support and i i definitely didn't know i was completely clueless i thought it was just too big and manchester's huge and i'll be completely lost to the system but there are the right people to ask if you search for it so I think, yeah, first of all, say no, preserve your, preserve what you need to. Don't say yes to everything, even though you think it's the right thing to do and continue practicing the things that make you feel happy and make you feel rested and sleep and eat and exercise. But also there will always be someone there if you look for it. And universities are good at offering support when you kind of seek it. That'd be my thing. Definitely. If the parents as well, definitely have a little research, make it a little activity and have a little think about what you can do before you send someone off to university in terms of points of call and that sort of thing. Apparently I over-research, so I need to let them do their research as well. It's like, mom, I don't need three pages just in case. <laughs> Excellent advice. And I think it applies to adults and people in the workforce as well, right? When we're stressed, when we're at deadline, when we're doing things, we're like, oh, I won't do all the things that I know make me feel better and boost my mental health. They, they just slip out the window. I'll grab a takeout. I'll, you know, not get enough sleep. And then we wonder why three months later, we're feeling no energy, depressed, you know, not contacting our friends, the whole thing. Uh, Charlie, what about you? Advice? So what I would say to anyone who's younger than me, uh, particularly if they're just starting university and that kind of age, is that you are so young and you have so much more time than you think. Um, So Claire mentioned she's um, a graduate entry student. I am also a graduate entry student. And even then, um, I had a year out of training that was incredibly beneficial uh, to me. Uh, that was what I did last academic year. And there's so much time in your late teens, 20s, probably 30s as well. I'm not there yet, so I don't know. But And you can use that to your advantage so much. And things can happen very slowly. You might not get to where you want to be straight away. You might think something's not going to work um, until it does, until things go very right very quickly or things instead maybe go consistently right over a period of time. Now, that's not to say that you should plow, keep plowing your uh, resources, your time, your efforts into something that you're not quite sure will work. But it is instead to think, actually, this is the time where I can make investments and this is the time where I can explore things and I can try things. And if it doesn't work, I might still only be 22 or 23 and the rest of the world is still going to be looking at, looking at me like I'm a child. So that, that's something that's very easy to forget um, when you're at that stage, I think. Um, perhaps setting a timer on university oh you've got three years you've got to do this you've got to do that um it doesn't help but even when you graduate you've you've still got so much more time and so many things have yet to come and just do appreciate you, do that. you do you feel that's beautiful i completely agree with that it's beautiful um do you feel charlie that you celebrate the wins you know what i mean so there's always the next thing 
And then there's the next thing. And we can sometimes get so like we get to the thing and then we're just like, oh, well, there's the next thing. You know, I don't know. Do you celebrate your, your the, each marker point and where you get to? So I actually, I actually struggle and I can, I can kind of relate to a lot of what I hear sports people say. And instead of a win being a win, it's actually associated with relief um, oh, as the overarching feeling. Yeah. Or like, thank God that didn't go badly. Wow. Um, and it's something that I need to work on. Uh, I am aware. I'm not recommending. <laughs> not recommending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe do the relief um, thing and then celebrate. <laughs> Try and do this if you're going to do both. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can do both. But um, certainly there's been times where I've just kept on going and, and encouraged that relentlessness, partly because that's part of who I am. And I'm not saying that's the right way to be. I'm not saying that's the best way to be for my own sake, but that is a feature of uh, myself that I've noticed. Um, but also partly because tying it back to our original sort of topic of conversation, um, it's, it's kind of inbuilt within the system. Um, so you pass one section of an exam or there's another section of the exam before you get the real thing. So when are you going to do that one? Um, you've had something published in a scientific journal. Well, to get the maximum points in your application, you actually need three or four. So when's your next one going to come? And it, it, it can create that, as I mentioned, treadmill attitude and where that doesn't in, stop. It starts in primary schools for some people, just that track of like the next exam or the next thing or the, ne you know, and I think it's modeled in society with parents like, okay, but now you got to do better. Like what's the next thing, right? And, and it just yeah. gets integrated into our whole being. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. I will say, in term, it probably didn't start in childhood for me. I was kind of insulated from that. Uh, and I was allowed to celebrate wins as a child. It's kind of something I developed more as an adult, um, oddly enough, fact. rather than mm. in, yeah, yeah, uh, rather than as a uh, teenager. Uh, I think maybe partly for, I remember two of the happiest times of my life were my summer holidays after my GCSEs and my summer holidays after my A-levels because that was just time. Yes. And obviously, being summer, lovely weather, but you've you've just done something and now you can just relax for months and months on end. And I just remember those those two specifically just as being so nice. And another another one being after I finished my first degree as well. Um you can just you've done it now, put the brakes on, enjoy yourself. Um, but then yeah, that that you don't really get that again after those sort of periods of life, I suppose. I wrote a book recently about well-being in the workplace, telling a bit of my story. And I, I think the skill of celebrating the wins or enjoying the journey and redefining success in a way, because we've got these notions, haven't we, about what success means. And I'm sure you guys have, you know, when you get to this level, that's successful. And then you're there and you're like, oh, I don't feel like I thought I was going to feel right. And so then you're like, OK, but when I get to this level, then I'm going to feel. And we're often chasing a feeling, right? even though we think we're chasing status, money, achievements, whatever, these sorts of things. So there are just these, it is a skill and um, I've certainly learned how to do it and we do it with our team. We will pause and be like, and we will go crazy. We will be like, that is incredible. And we will just kind of party and in this small moment, you know, about little things that we've done. I have two more questions. They're kind of big questions, but they're ones that I, um, we'll see where we go and see how we can get everyone's voice on it. So one is because you guys are closer to being young, young than I am and some of, um, of my peers, I want to talk about technology for a little second um, and social media and just what you think the impact of these elements. And there's some science here and there's different opinions on, on in a variety of ways. But in your experience, does social media and technology have a positive or negative impact on our mental health? Claire? You want to go there? And then I'll go to Kate and Charlie. I'd love to get all your opinions. And then we'll close out with another big question. I apologize, but we're getting there. It's interesting. Claire, what do you think? That is a huge question. And I think I'm conflicted on my response, to be honest. I can see how there are negatives in terms of social media because, for example, so my whole year group at uni, so the whole medic year group, so say there's like 150 to 117 in my year, are all on a WhatsApp chat. So there's a WhatsApp chat with the entire year That's group. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, right. And also it, it, 
I think sometimes it can lead, lead to a bit of mass hysteria. So sometimes somebody will ask a question and then you can literally see people freaking out. So it might be something content related the night before an exam being like, guys, has anybody looked at this? No. And then it causes like, this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or like, oh, has has have people, <laughs> Charlie's response is similar, have people done this deadline that's due? And it's just sometimes a bit like... Panic. Panic, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how helpful that is. And also there's a lot of um, like medic Instagram, Twitter accounts. And I think for a while, not so much now, but for a while, a lot of those were very much like, look at what I achieve in a day or like study for four hours with me nonstop, be as productive as me. Uh, and again, I'm not sure how helpful that is in terms of like how realistic that is for, for people to see as their like way of of being a medic i'm not sure how, how you especially with perfectionist tendencies yeah for sure and you're like oh my god this is everyone mm. yeah, but then on top of that i really see the value in the community that social media brings because i enjoy med instagram i just follow people that are right for me so the people that i take something from right yeah yeah and i've met a lot of great people through that um and also in terms of us three like uh, charlie kate and myself have a great relationship like we we're like we chat about all sorts our podcast recordings are rarely this smooth there's usually about an hour at the end of us just catching up on life and actually we've never met in person so you know that that sort of it is possible to those naysayers who are like is connection possible virtually my team's fully remote i'm like why yes it is but you just need to create the, that space, right? For for going deep, I guess. For sure, and it didn't it didn't happen overnight. Obviously, we've been we've been chatting for a long time now, and we have spent a lot of virtual time together. So I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm just saying that I think I've taken a lot from the social community that comes from social media. But I do also see how it can have negative impacts. Yeah, um, uh, Kate, what do you think? Do, is Are we kind of in the middle? There's negatives, there's positives. How does it affect you? Oh, absolutely. It's so polarizing. I'm the same as Claire. It's It's been so beneficial for me, but also been my downfall. It's been both at the same time. Same as Claire, when I was really struggling. And I mean, struggling to the point of getting out of bed was just a chore. I The first person I found on Instagram who had been through the same thing was there was another doctor who spoke very very openly about her anxiety and depression and I think I must have messed her at like four o'clock in the morning being like thank you thank you thank you I I needed to know there was someone else out there so I found this suddenly this community of doctors who've been through really similar things I've met with quite a few of them in person because we've done kind of conferences together talking about mental health and that was incredible and I don't think if I had that it wouldn't have spurred me on quite so much to get better. I think I would have just sacked medicine in. I would have thrown the towel and I would have just, you know, continued with my life. Yeah, yeah, I would have. Yeah, I, would have. I, I remember phoning my mom before an exam and telling her that I refused to go in. So and there's no point. It's no, it's not in the future for me anymore until she forced me in and said, you're going to go in, just sit it. And it, I, don't, I don't know how I passed, but I think by the skin of my teeth. But it was so important for me at that point to see people who reflected, you know, you can get through it be fine don't worry just keep going yeah I also I'm the same as Claire I follow accounts you know people who go to the gym loads I think oh I can do that but because of my time constraints I can't do that I can't keep up with someone who's got a very flexible work-life balance or people who can afford to buy better ingredients to make better food or people that have more money can go on nicer holidays and I feel for younger people they might be more vulnerable to this as well seeing people who are so far the other end of the spectrum they're constantly trying to catch up to this whether it's you know publishing these papers or being the best medical student or being the best at the gym and I find that I'm the same as Claire I have to really strip back that and not continuously follow people who are you know maybe at the top of their game but maybe not because I think social media can hide a lot of the bad things you go through I'm sure my Instagram posts during my very very dark times were probably so perfectly cultivated to not reflect that because I was quite embarrassed of how I was feeling right so I think young people are very vulnerable to following accounts and, you know, following people who are unrealistic according to kind of their lives, you know, financially, time-wise, kind of social, economically, you might not be able to keep up with these people. So it's damaging if you try and kind of really hurt yourself over it because you're trying to achieve goals, which, you know, you need a little bit more support to go about. But yeah, I'm the same as Claire. It's, it's, it's good and it's bad if it's used correctly, I think. 
It's how you use it. I mean, they are set up to be addictive, right? So I do think there's an element of numbing emotions, like when we're in those kind of dark places that we're just like, let me scroll, like almost a self-harmy kind of experience of, of I know this is bad for me, but I'm just going to sit here in it for a little bit. Um, can I, and can so, I, can I yeah, just jump please. in on that? Because I, the one point that I failed to mention when I was chatting just there is the procrastination side of things. Like, mm. I think just and I think sometimes I hear people say oh I'm watching medic tiktok so it counts as revision like no no put down medic tiktok so that <laughs> you do some actual revision and that means you can have some time off you know what I mean like I, I do think it it leads to procrastination I, I had exams um this week I just I just finished yesterday and I had to mute all my group chats and I had to put my phone out of my sight because towards the end as we got closer to exam day the procrastination was just slipping in and I found myself doom scrolling just scrolling through when actually it's so unproductive and I could then have had you know an ever chill time in the evening if I gathered up that time that I'd spent scrolling and and used it more productively. We usually sleep less and it affects our nervous system energy so many things um we've gone to quite a few things but Charlie anything to add just on uh technology? Well (laughs) Everyone needs to remember that, particularly with social media, that you are the product. So unless you are using it productively, then it is using you. And you are making them a hell of a lot of money through all of this stuff. And there's a lot of data to back up the fact that it is seriously negatively impacted the mental health of teenagers, I think in particular teenage girls. And from my own personal point of view, I don't have X, Twitter, um, and I don't have TikTok. Um, I, I've never, I've never bothered with TikTok just because I, I gen- generally with all the social medias have always been like the last to get them anyway. So I'm just now too old for TikTok. I just feel, um, and also with X, I had it for a while. It just made me angry. It just yeah. started making me angry. And that is because they know that anger sells. They know that anger gets more impressions or outrage gets more impressions and interaction than anything else. And so it was all the negative. Provoking it in a way. Word, yeah, a word I shouldn't use. Um, so all the negative stuff that was coming up. And I noticed this and I was just like, why, why am I on here? This makes no sense. Now, the reason I was on there at the time was to help promote a teaching series that I was doing. And I was just trying to be as sort of out there with it as possible okay fine um and as soon as that ended i got rid of it and um i i have instagram but i don't have the app on my phone i have facebook but i don't have the app on my phone and i don't have things like uh you know the youtube app on my phone or anything just because i i know that the more i personally use it the more upset I get. And a lot of that is also to do with the comparison machine that they all have become because they, let's be honest, none of, none of us post when we do badly or, or don't look great or are having a bit of a, a lazy morning or, or whatever. Uh, none of us post our worst running times or when we're not at the gym, but we're not yeah. lifting as heavy as we can. We, we all make it seem like we're the best all the time. And actually, we, you know, I might, you might follow a thousand people on Instagram and you might see videos or whatever from hundreds of them, but you're not going to see the same people every day a lot of the time. Sometimes you might, but you know, you, you're going to see people when they're at their best. And, and even when they're posting, Oh, I failed or I didn't not having such a good day. They're, they're doing it to show you that they're vulnerable too. And yeah, they're yeah, actually yeah. Um, a human too. And that's part of the the gimmick. And that's part of the, authenticity marketing. Of the time. Mm. Yeah. Authenticity marketing. That's, that's yeah. The best way to put it. And so let's be honest. And unless, unless you're using it in the productive way that uh, Katie and Claire uh, found five specific people that are going to help you. It's just not worth your time or, you know, maybe your job requires it. So maybe you're a journalist and you need to share your stories online or something like that. Sure. I mean, I, yeah, there's a business element when you run your own business, you've got to think of some of these things, but you can curate it. And they say, we compare our insides to other people's outsides. And that's, you know, so we're like, I'm filled with imposter syndrome or whatever it is, right? But everyone else seems to be. 
but you're not comparing on an even playing field, which is insides on all sides, right? So I think we need, anyway, those honest conversations. I feel like we could do a whole show just on uh, technology and digital well-being. Um, so I have a final question. Have, have any of you read the book, though? Not that you have time to read these types of books because you guys have heads, you're headed in important things. There's this book written by a doctor called When Breath Becomes Air. Have you read that one? And so he have you, many you know, years ago. Yeah. And I don't know if they made a movie or a documentary. I didn't. I like books better than whatever they do there. But um, it was to your point, Claire, around the doctor being a shit patient, you know? And so he was like a specialist in a type of ca- cancer or, or, or something. He was very, he was a consultant. He was very high up. He'd done the whole thing. And then he contracted the very cancer that he often works with. And so it was this interesting, I'm into psychology. So the flip, flipped narrative of like, oh, I now have to be the way, like he'd be trying to look after his own care. I think, doctor, I should be doing this, this, and this. So learning to be the patient. And I just think it was a beautiful read. Um, and he ends up passing away. And it's that whole kind of narrative to, to, to moving, um, to that final stage. Uh, and there, I, I imagine just there's so many elements to your job. There's the stress of getting places, but then there's the world of seeing pain or suffering or people coming to you with endless ailments, right? That I just think as a therapist, it's a different version of it, but it's kind of take, you have to learn those psychological boundaries, I guess, for having empathy because we want that, but we also don't, can't give everything away, right? So I have one final question, and this is a question I ask all guests, um, and no matter what their role is, so you can interpret it however you want. We'll, we'll make sure everyone gets a chance to answer. And the question is, what is the most radical change you think we need when it comes to well-being and the focus on mental health that we see in the world today? So you can apply that to your workplace, to being a student, to your family, your personal life, whatever it might be. What is the most radical change you think we need when it comes to well-being and mental health in the world today? And I'll just see who wants to. I, yeah, please go ahead. Can I jump in? Jump. I'm going to go full on with the clinical doctor side of it and say, it just needs to be better on the NHS because currently the NHS does, in many cases, provides an inadequate level of mental health care. That, that, now, that is not to have a go at the thousands and thousands of GPs, mental health practitioners, psychiatrists, clinical psychologists out there Absolutely. individually doing a fantastic job. However, if I go back to my time as an F2 doctor and GP, I was just limited as to what I could offer patients. I couldn't refer them to excellent therapy services. I had to give them uh, links to having self um, CBT um, and self help. That that was all that the CCG could offer, as well as prescriptions, which were not applicable to many of the cases clinically. Slash were already being tried. Slash had already failed, and that let's say child and adolescent health, uh, mental health, you might be waiting three years to see a specialist. Your whole life Two has years. changed by then, hasn't it? Yeah. And this is for children. There's a big difference between a six-year-old and an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old. There's a big difference between a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. But you're, you're asking them, to, and that's just for a first consultation. Yeah. It's nuts. And so for me personally, that is definitely one radical change that we need to see in this country. Beautiful. Thank you, Charlie. Who wants to go next? Can't tell who's ready. Kate? I agree with Charlie there. I think from a technical background, it's just having more resources. It's having more resources to allow for people to look after themselves, but also encouraging people to just start with the basics. I think it's really difficult because I think medication is amazing and it definitely saved my life when it needed to. Yeah, I think it's so difficult if we give everyone a prescription, but it doesn't, we don't have access to things which can maybe dive a bit deeper, like therapy like, you know, CBT, IPT, DBT, these amazing things which are clinically actually proven to have more effects than medication. And I think there's a problem. And I I think, again, I don't have the statistics back this up and I'm not someone who's prescribing at the moment because I'm not at that stage yet. Because we don't have those resources, it's so much easier to be pushed to have a prescription. Yeah, I think we need to open up and we need to think a bit more holistic about the way we offer mental health. I think we need to have a lot more in terms of therapy 
And I also think in this country, our problem is the lack of community. We're very quite private people. Right. Yeah. We, we are very kind of private. We live private lives compared to a lot of other countries. So I think just encouraging more community is so helpful and starting with those basics. Because unfortunately, as an individual, you can't do anything about the waiting list, which is such a shame, unless you have the money to go private, which is amazing. But start with the basics, reach out, build community and also try other things like yoga, try meditation, start with things which can help. I know it sounds silly because in many instances, a lot of people are very poorly and do need that sort of medical help. But I think we just need a lot more access to resources like therapy and explore a more holistic approach instead of just prescribing medication constantly for people that need, you know, therapy and that sort of thing. I agree. And often when they're coming with such severe medical things, it's because we didn't have the education or the resources early on in that stage, right? For prevention to be possible for some of these um, kind of diseases that end up escalating, especially stress-related ones or, or connected. Claire, drum roll. <laughs> I got an addition to what Kate was just saying just there before I give my point, if that's okay, just because it's super relevant but I, I I agree with the holistic approach absolutely necessary but I think of recent we often fall down the trap of self-care solving everything and I have a, an issue kind of with that terminology even of of self-care because I think sometimes so why I don't meet enough people who have that problem <laughs> that just for just for to me I think sometimes we confuse self-care with basic real life functions that we should be doing without having to take time out of it. Like you shouldn't have to take self-care time to shower. Like if your job is demanding so much that you don't have enough time to shower, there's something wrong there. Like we shouldn't be, yeah, we shouldn't have so much pressure in the rest of our lives that we have to like, I don't know, classify showering as self-care. That's just, as self-care, that's just like, like, yeah a real bugbear of me of mine to be honest I do understand that if you're struggling and actually getting up and out of out and and sharing is a a huge achievement that is great that that isn't what I'm talking about I just mean for people who are managing an everyday life basic needs yeah as a human yeah for sure and also because the term has become so monetized of recent I just feel like everyone's selling a or a wearable device or a supplement and, and things like this. And, and actually like that isn't the root of self-care. But anyway, yeah, but I also do agree to with Kate's, To Kate's point, like we're obsessed with self-care, but like with connection, like how do we get that belonging care where we've got the community element where it's a we thing rather than just self, right? I just think our balance is a little bit skewed. Go ahead, Claire. Sorry, and then uh, just for my radical yeah, yeah. change, which potentially isn't all that, ra- or it shouldn't be radical, but I, I would say just openness, and that's coming from a medical student perspective, but but stretches, as do most of our podcast topics, stretch way beyond medical students and doctors, just stretches to the whole community. Just genuine openness about what's going on and how you're feeling, and actually then that becoming not so much of a big deal, because everyone's just open about about how they're feeling and, and what's going on. And I think, to be honest, leading kind of nicely to what Charlie was saying, that starts with healthcare professionals. Like There's just so much stigma still within our profession, within medicines. The other the other week I mentioned I was going to see the med support team. Now that was nothing to do with my mental health. It was nothing to do with um like how I was it was nothing to do with anything um particularly impactful. But I said it out loud to a group of medics in the med school cafe and everyone went silent and turned and looked at me as if I'd said something like really crazy that I was going to do something. And that just can't be the attitudes. And I probably coming in from my background where I've not been so much on the treadmill that you guys talked about earlier. And I've not, I've not got that same sort of strict only medic perspective. I just don't see an, an, I didn't see an issue with that, but there clearly is still a problem there when people were flinching at the thought of me mentioning that I was going to see the support team specifically for um, medics. And I guess it does relate back to that relatability to patients. If we can be open with ourselves, then we are more likely to have patients disclose things and are more likely to have those um, like wholehearted, genuine conversations with patients. And sustain our professions for longer, right? Yeah. Yeah. I would say I'm just going to jump in just yeah, to get yeah. off the back of Claire. <laughs> I think if if... Me, I'm, I'm exactly the same as, but I'm very, very open about all the therapy. I think I've had CBT three times, possibly more. And again, very sparsely because the resources aren't particularly there, which is another problem. But I'm very, very fortunate to have had it. 
And it was so beneficial. And I think if I speak about it in front of more people, and that means one more person goes to see their their medical professional, because I believe I'm the same as Claire, self-care shouldn't be self-care. Like those are things which, you know, if you're in a sort of a corporate world where you can't even manage those things, which just make you human, that's, that's definitely a fault of the system. But if me being, you know, speaking about my kind of antidepressant use previously, you know, I still take them, they're still really great. And I speak about CBT and it makes one more person go and consult their health professional to go and start that ball rolling. Then I've done something good because we always should just, it should just be an organic conversation like mental health day and, and sort of world suicide day are amazing because they bring it to a point, but it shouldn't be a day. It should be a constant. And that's what we need to kind of push for. Just beautiful. All of you. Thank you for joining me uh, this evening. Uh, when you have had a little bit of time, it's been an epic conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for just hours and hours, uh, and we might just have to have you back on the podcast uh, in season two. Uh, but thank you so much. Can someone, what's the the charity again? Does anyone know the website off the top of their head? And we'll be, be sure to add it to the show notes. Sure. So the overall charity is called You OK Doc. I think at the minute, the website's actually under maintenance. So okay. your best place might be to get us on Instagram or also I think you can follow on LinkedIn as well. And then our specific part is our podcast, which does have a med student focus, uh, but it's, it stretches much wider. You know, we speak with doctors, we speak with um, like healthcare professionals and also just, I think it's probably relatable to the wider community. Um, and that is The Student Dose. Beautiful. Thank you so much. We'll add all of that into the show notes. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you got loads of ideas on how you can be the change and disrupt well-being in your world and your workplace. If you want to hear any more about our guests or the resources we mentioned, check out our show notes. And of course, find your workplace benefits at perks.com and all your strategy or training needs at petrabelzebor.com. I'm so excited for future conversations. Please do join us for the next episode of Disrupting Wellbeing with massively interesting conversations and guests who will give you practical ideas to be the change you want to see in the world. See you next time.